The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, this is Tiffany Bova, author of Growth IQ, and you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Tiffany Bovo, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm good. And where are you? I am in sunny Southern California today. Okay. And what's going on in your quarantined world? I don't know. Like, it's just been crazy. I know this. I haven't been to LAX in 80 days. I haven't had my suitcase with me. No TSA, you know, pre-check. No, you know, eating on airplanes. No missing flights. So, you know, in that way... It's great, but I haven't been home this long in over 15 years. So it's been an adjustment for sure. But, you know, as long as everybody's healthy and happy and, you know, has a roof over our head, there's nothing to complain about. Yeah. Well, great. I'm glad. And you're doing okay. You're not traveling. Hopefully you haven't picked up any kind of coronavirus. I have not. I have not. I have uh, avoided kind of being out. I really took the quarantine orders in uh, Los Angeles anyway. Uh, you know, seriously, you know, in the sense that there was a good two weeks there where I did not leave the house. Like that was definitely strange. I mean, I would go into my backyard and get a little vitamin D, but I, I wasn't going and venturing out. I see. Okay. So you were on the Marketing Book Podcast for episode 241. This week I published episode 279. So you were a recent guest. This was August of 2019. And we talked about growth IQ. For those that haven't heard that interview yet, remind listeners who are you and and what you're doing these days. Well, uh, I am currently the uh, global growth evangelist at Salesforce. Um, I am also an author of Growth IQ. I have got a podcast as well called What's Next. Uh, But I spend 100% of my time, if you will, Uh, watching patterns and trends in the market around things that are very relevant to sales and marketing and customer service, the impact of digital transformation to the way brands sort of uh, engage with customers. And then I get the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time with our internal research team putting out uh, research around the state of, and we've just recently uh, released the state of marketing this week. So it's been it's been good to spend time on things I normally don't have time to do, uh, which is really consuming and learning and talking and hearing and listening to customers, as well as uh, you know sharing thoughts uh, with people like you. Well, and we're going to talk about a number of those things, but there's a couple of things we got to get out of the way right now, Tiffany Bova. First off, tell listeners what kind of beer you have there. There's a, and there's a picture of Tiffany at marketingbookcocktails.com. You'll be able to see. It is a can of one of my favorite beers called Hinano, which is a Tahitian beer. Um, 
And I was born and raised in Hawaii. So I, you know, it's usually primo, but you know, in when times are tough and I can't get to the liquor stores, it's kind of like, what do I still have laying around the house? And uh, I happened to have a lone can of Hinano and I felt it was the perfect day. Well, and the struggle is real as it relates to getting just the right beer. I, I you know, I, I understand what you're dealing with. But now you mentioned Hawaii and you went to high school with a guy named Barry, right? I, I did. Yeah, Barry. He was cool guy, played a little basketball, uh, you know, was kind of nondescript in lots of ways, uh, but, you know, went on to do amazing things. Yeah. And what was, um, what's he doing these days? Well, right now he's doing commencement speeches for the class of 2020. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, you what was his last job? Yeah. His last job was president of the United States. Oh, um, yeah, Barry. that Barry. Okay, yeah. Barack Obama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Barry Obama, that guy. Right. Uh, and uh, he's doing commencement speeches and clearly battling it out with our current president. Yes, yes, yes. And I, those are the kind of things that I am fortunate to be able to avoid. And it's um, mainly because I've stopped pretty much any television news. Uh, and I'm even cutting back on looking at news online. <laughs> At any rate, we're not going to talk about that. What uh, have you been seeing? So you mentioned you're following trends. And just today, perfect timing, I got an email from um, your publicist uh, or the one working for Salesforce saying, hey, we just got this uh, new report. And I'm going to include a link to that uh, to where people can get this uh, report that we're going to talk about. But what other kinds of trends are you noticing that are even more specific to this coronavirus, this, this whole pandemic? Yeah, well, so what was interesting was we fielded this research uh, and data from nearly 7,000 marketing leaders across the globe for, it was an annual state of marketing report that we did, and it was just as the COVID-19 crisis emerged. And so um, the insights that we found just absolutely demonstrated the importance of kind of three things, you know, sort of one is this relentless focus on customer experience, which is just continuing over time. I mean, it's been a trend uh, that I was watching prior to my role here at Salesforce uh, as a research fellow at Gartner, spent a lot of time on on digital marketing and customer experience and sort of what does that mean? And so that relentless focus continuing uh, to happen it is good to see that we haven't abandoned that. The second one was um, unwavering commitment to helpfulness and relevancy and trustworthiness. I think that's even more important now as brands are starting to pivot the messaging towards you know, more of this kind of, we're in this together. How can we help? We're here for you. You know, we care about you. Those things that are, um, you know, absolutely important. Uh, and then, and then the third thing is just this ultimate continuous pursuit of, um, you know, doing well by doing good. It's kind of combination of how can marketers really, you know, play a role in communicating the brand's values in a way that doesn't feel, well, it needs to feel authentic. Let me say that. So do you think that's behind a lot of those emails that people are getting from companies they haven't heard of or haven't heard from in eight years outlining all their th- all the things they're doing to respond to the pandemic? Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts I have behind that. You know, I agree. You know, all of a sudden, well, the first three weeks, I would say that's definitely slowed down in the last five or six weeks. But in the first couple of weeks, I was hearing from brands I hadn't heard from in years like, you know, we're here for you. We care about you as a customer. We want to make, is there anything we can do? You know, that kind of communication, if you will. And and I've found it interesting, you know, mostly because of what I do for a living, because I felt like, wow, if you cared that much about me, you, you would be communicating to me over time, you know, and it's kind of like they just grabbed their database and just sent off a message. Uh, And so, you know, I think that it it may have this time we're in is also kind of cracking open the the things that we've been doing historically that are no longer as effective, nor possibly, you know, are consumers and customers um, willing to to get that kind of communication from brands. So I think the first thing I'd say is that it's kind of shame on brands for not being better at communicating over time and not just in this massive way and very non-personalized. That's one camp. The other camp I thought I was getting communication from that was 
I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, but let's just say that it was already a queued up campaign mm. before the COVID hit, you know? So I was getting messages about life insurance policies. And while that's a great thing to sell, I'm not sure just in the first couple of weeks of a pandemic where the United States is completely shut down, that that was the right message. Uh, and, and there was no sort of even weaving in of, hey, we're going through this, we're here for you, I know this may be an uncomfortable time, you know, however to sort of couch that very personalized communication in a way that isn't off-putting, because when I got it once, and then like three days later, I got it again, also, I had not heard from that brand. So I had to actually unsubscribe to something I did not subscribe to Mm -hmm. at some point. Uh, but I just thought the messaging was off. So two things to that comment you made, right? One is this deluge of communication that now everyone has an opinion and they want to reach out to their customers because they care so much about you and you haven't heard from them in years. (laughs) The second one is, you know, that it's completely the wrong message, very tone deaf to the current situation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I also wonder how much of that might have been forced by legal departments. I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering, were they under some sort of pressure to show that they had tried to communicate with their, with their, their uh, customers? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think that those are the dangers in um, being driven by, you know, this is a whole nother conversation. I'm not sure you even want to go down this, this route, but you know, I'd say that, that lends itself to another topic that I've been spending quite a bit of time over, over the last six or seven years on what are the KPIs and are they driving the right behavior, right? Because if it was just, yep, check the box, I did Mm -hmm. a massive communication to our customer, check, you know, to everybody, check, you know, was it, you know, how many, what was our bounce rate? What was our open rate? What was it, you know, and that kind of, that kind of metric Mm -hmm. where, okay, hold on a second. (laughs) Was it even the right message? Have we spoken to them? You know, even if they'd opened up and said, I know you haven't heard from us in a long time. Mm-hmm. I would have been like, you know what? Thank you for owning it, right? Yes. But instead of being like, oh, we care, then the message is, well, I care about you. Well, you don't care that much about me, right? Because <laughs> I don't even know who you are and how you got my email. But I'm guessing I bought something from you, you know, at some point in time. Yeah, it's when you hear from companies that you're uh, you're getting emails from things, uh, companies where you're embarrassed to admit that you bought from them. I, I, that didn't happen to me, but I can just imagine people getting on some list thinking, did, did I buy this stuff? No, 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 stop. <laughs> stop sending me that stuff. So I was talking to an, another author uh, the other day, Ian Altman, who wrote Same Side Selling. And he has been talking to a lot of his clients and having to show some of them how to go about continuing their sales efforts. And these were people in one particular instance where they just said, no, that would never work. I have to meet people in person. What are some of the Mm -hmm. things that you're noticing about the world of sales, if not that as well? So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I I went out and asked on Twitter and LinkedIn, sort of what are the top sales challenges you have as a seller uh, today. And one of them was this, you know, I've always sold face to face and, and, you know, what do I, what do I do now? And, you know, the truth of the matter is everybody is an inside seller at this point, pretty much. I mean, you know, there, as we're slowly reopening, even things like uh, car dealerships, it's going to be very, very different now on, on how that whole engagement goes. And even with the small little lean-ins they're doing now, whether that's going to stick over the long term. But becoming an inside seller for an outside seller is a completely different set of skills. And you know, I, I often joke that maybe outside sellers will have a, a new level of respect for inside sellers because it's kind of that rivalry, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're an inside salesperson. Like, bah, you know, you need to come out here and fight the real fight. Mm-hmm. And the inside people are going, yeah, yeah. Try being an inside person. Like you meet a person a day. I make a hundred phone calls a day. I'm rejected 99 times a day. You know, (laughs) like I get hung up on 50 times a day. No one returns my call. You show up. People are like, oh, hey, Bob, let's go have a great lunch or a round of golf or a great dinner. Me inside sales, I, I have to, you know, completely lean on my ability to be 
interesting, interested, get them to open my email, answer the phone, whatever it might be. And so I feel like the outside sellers are getting um, a crash course in, in, in what it's like to be an inside seller. Some grew up being inside sellers to move to outside sellers. Others just went straight to outside and have never sold inside. So, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for um, the kinds of skills you would now need going from outside in. But I'm also a firm believer and have said this for some time, which is I'm not a fan when sellers say to me and they look me straight in the eye and say, nope, I have to be in front of my customer. Like it is a press the flesh, shake their hand, look them eyeball to eyeball. And that's how I sell. And it's very, I've had these clients for decades. Like they know me, they expect to see me. And I'm like, "Mm, yeah, not scalable. And also they maybe don't want to see you at, because it's not necessary anymore. The C side of B2C, the consumer side has proven and shown that they are willing, consumers are willing to use apps, use technology to have that kind of interaction and engagement, whether it's chat, whether it's a bot, whether it's a video call, whatever it might be, um, to buy things as expensive as, you know, a a Tesla and never seeing someone initially, you know, when Tesla first came out, it was give me your credit card. I don't know when your car is going to show up. It's a six figure purchase and it'll take you five minutes, but you do it all online. Hmm. I mean, you know, that proved that I don't need to go, go to the car, you know, car dealer, test drive the car. (laughs) Like it was a very specific audience at that, you know, when Tesla first came out. Now, of course it's gone after the long tail and it's kind of married the two things together with, you know, you can come to the showroom, but you can't buy in the showroom. Like you still have to buy the same way. But if you want to see it, feel it, touch it, potentially test drive it, we're going to give you that opportunity as they got more towards scale. But there's lots to be learned for the fact that customers no longer need you to sell the way you used to sell, which could have been face to face. Hmm. It's interesting from my perspective in that there's not an expectation that I have to be there. Everyone's happy to be on on the on Zoom right now. And so it's I it makes me wonder how much of what's going on now will stick. In other words, do you think there's anything that's uh, happening now in the in the world of sales that's that's going to continue or do you think that things are largely going to bounce back to the way they were before? Yeah, so I'd say this. I don't know if um I don't know if the right answer is to, I'm going to say this in air quotes, go back to the way it was before, Mm -hmm. because I feel like in many ways, the customer has really pivoted towards new kinds of behaviors. And so, you know, going back to that state of marketing report, you know, one of the top things was this relentless sort of focus on innovation. Yeah. And so marketing has really been pushing the envelope, you know, as well as brands pushing the envelope on innovation. And then, it, you know, I like to joke that I say, okay, let's just talk about the, the marketing funnel for a moment, like the ADA funnel. Mm-hmm. And I, I usually ask people, when do you think the ADA funnel was invented? A uh, hundred years ago? Yeah, it was a little more than a hundred years ago. So it was in the 1890s, mm. literally. And so I say, I don't know. You think maybe the funnel <laughs> needs an update? I'll call it crazy. Yeah, well, Tiffany, come let's be honest. This whole internet thing is a fad. Of course it is. Of course it is. But once the fad is over. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't interview people. Yes. Yeah, right. But so that's one thing I say. The second thing I say is, and then when you talk about like solution selling, giving a demo, having people, uh, you know, selling the value, not selling on speeds and feeds or price. You know, coming up with a financing terms, you know, helping people with, you know, installing and using what you're selling. Also from the late 1800s, from the gentleman who started uh, NCR, National Cash Registers, which his sales leader at the time was a gentleman by the name of Watson, who then went on to, you know, work at IBM. And they were known for being one of the best selling organizations, right? You can't get fired for buying IBM mm-hmm. for 50 or 60 years of just the, the complete focus on selling process. And so now I've just said that the 
marketing funnel and a lot of the sales processes we've had in place since the 1800s, late 1800s. So I then argue, really, we want to go back to that when over that 100 years, 130 years, 120 years, over that 120 years, customers are very different. Like buying habits are different. The way they buy is different. The way they find out about your products is different. How they talk to other customers you have is different. You know, if you go to the CEB data, you know, which is now owned by Gartner, it's like 65% of their journey is already done before they ever talk to a seller. Whatever you, if you agree or don't agree with that, the point is it's not, they come to you knowing nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like even with all the innovation we've had on so many fronts, that sales leaders, unfortunately, are stuck in what I call a sell- the seller's dilemma, which is a complete play on the innovator's dilemma. Oh, that's the, right. Yeah. yeah. I remember that was in dilemma, your book. Yeah. But the sales dilemma is that selling leaders don't take the time to look at innovating the sales motions, models, processes, stages, comp plans, KPIs, productivity metrics, technology they're using, et cetera, on a regular basis because they're held to the daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly quota attainment and you know retiring of the revenue that we you know need to earn as a business. So if you're constantly on the hamster wheel of I'm trying to deliver numbers, you're not stopping for a moment and sharpening your blade to focus on innovation. So that that goes right to the heart, I think, of your question of being a face-to-face seller is knocking on doors selling books in the late 1800s or you know, vacuum cleaners or you know, whatever it might have been. And do we still need to do that today? Um, I, I, I'm not saying we don't need to do it at all. I'm saying that I think customers have shown that they want to blend. That's so interesting. And it also brings to mind this book I read by this guy named Sweezy, um, Matthew Sweezy. I think he works for Salesforce. I'm kidding. I know he's your colleague. He was on the Marketing Book Podcast, and that was such a terrific book where he talks about how it's more about the context of the buyer. And uh, I, th- I thought that was uh, interesting. And actually, he I think he mentioned there's another colleague you all have that's writing a book. Uh, Karen is writing one on customer experience. Oh, ex- Karen. Maglia is writing one. So Matt has context marketing, kind of future marketing stuff. I've got, you know, growth IQ. And then Karen is writing one on uh, customer success, customer experience. Um, So yeah, I I don't know if it's coming out this year or maybe next year. Yeah. Yeah. Super great though. Well, tell her about my podcast, would you? Could you put in a good word? I I absolutely will. (laughs) Happy to connect you. Thank you. Yeah. I know this guy, he he interviews authors of new uh, sales and marketing books. So you mentioned in this um, state of marketing report that, uh, and I'm looking at it now, it says 84% of customers say the experience a company provides is as important as its products and services. And this is up from 80% the year before, I guess. Yeah, and we actually expect that to hit 100% by 2023. Oh, really? Well, I'm not surprised by that number, but it reminds me of a study from, I think it was Bain a few years back, where they uh, spoke to a few hundred companies and about 80% or so thought that they were providing a good customer experience. And then they went and polled the customers of those companies, and only 8% of the Customers thought that they were getting a a good experience. Is there still a a big gap between what the customers want and and so what I mean is how how happy are the uh, customers with the experience they're getting? Is there still a pretty big gap there? Yeah, that's a great question because it's it's like almost everything else, right? I think we're doing a great job. Customers go, yeah. Let let's go back to what we were just talking about. I'm doing a great job. I communicated with all of our customers, Mr. CEO, Ms. CEO, because that's what you told me to do, mm-hmm. right? I'm a customer. The marketer or the seller is saying, well, I did this really great thing and our customers should be feeling like, you know, I care about them. I've reached out to them. I'm delivering them a great experience. I'm communicating. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm like, that was a terrible experience. Number one, it was impersonalized. You, were, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. all of those things. So almost like what we were just talking about. And so I'm a huge fan, and you know this is this is a lot of what Karen is going to 
cover in her book. But, you know, I'm a huge fan of when I'm sitting at meetings and executives tell me, you know, I think we should, and this is what we think we should do. And people chime in, well, we tried that. It didn't work. I, you know, I want to do it this way. It's very internally focused. I'm, I, I always default back to ask the customer. And so net promoter scores tends to be one that now people are embracing more and more and more, which is that, you know, it's not a look back. It's really a in the moment giving you a real-time pulse on are your customers happy or are they not happy? And so, you know, that's why I was saying that the metrics behind some of this behavior is just creating the wrong behavior. Mm -hmm. So until you start to change the metric, then you don't know that that gap is actually widening. And I, and I think that the gap is widening even more between the sellers and customers because of everything we just talked about. Right. They want it to be more seamless. They want it to feel more consumer like if you're in B2B, um, you know, I want to be able to chat in whatever channel I want. I don't need you to come and visit me like just send it to me this way or that way. Like I don't want to have to sign paperwork. I want to do DocuSign. I don't want I want dynamic pricing You know, all the things they want. Um, and sales is just trying to keep up. So, you know, I, I think that that the experience is not just about um you know, the things that we normally talk about, it's it's everything that has to do with the brand. It's how customers feel when they engage with your people. Uh, and that could be anybody, your receptionist, the person who cleans, you know, the offices and, you know, a client is still in there working after hours because you've let them. And then how is the, you know, engagement if the, the person who's who's uh, cleaning up the office after is rude or, you know, why are you here? I'm going to call security and, you know, everything impacts that experience. And so everybody plays a role. Yes. And there was a book on the show a while back by Lee Sauls uh, called Sales Differentiation. And it was very interesting because he was arguing that, yes, there are some things that companies can do to differentiate themselves, but the biggest differentiator could be your sales process. Yes. I think that it's because this, and I'm going to put sales uh, as a huge umbrella term because the process by which you would try to get someone to be interested in your product and the process by which you're going to actually let them, let them buy your product <laughs> is, is the sort of seamless part of that, right? So it's, was it messaged correctly? Was the pricing right? Was it easy to order? Like, I don't know why brands make it hard to buy from them. Like if I have to click 92 times and like, I'm just trying to buy from you. Like it cannot be this difficult. Uh, and so, you know, the sales process, uh, I, I, I joke is, um, you know, some businesses will have three steps in the sales process, five, seven. I've heard some have north of 10 or 12 process steps in the sales process. I'm like, good God. So that would be a don't do that. But here's what I, I, I know two things for sure. I don't know many, but I know these <laughs> two things. Number one, your customers do not wake up in the morning and go, oh my God, today is an amazing day. I am moving from stage two to stage three in the buying process. They don't say that. Mm-hmm. They also don't say, oh my gosh, this marketing funnel has been just a joy. I just cascade beautifully down from one stage to the next stage to the next stage. We also know they don't say that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one. I, I can't uh, argue with you on those. You, you got me, yeah. Tiffany. Yeah. I, yeah, right? Okay. They, they don't do that. Hence why I said it doesn't really matter what we want. Like, what do they want? They yep. don't know you have 12 steps. They don't know you have an ADA funnel. They don't even know what that stands for. They don't, you know, they don't want to be called a target. They don't, you mm -hmm. know, what I mean? like all those things. Um, and then the asterisk is salespeople do not wake up every day and go, I cannot wait to data enter. Those are <laughs> things I now know for fact. And anybody who does not agree with those three, I want to hear from you because I want someone to disprove that statement. Mm, yes. <laughs> Don't hold your breath waiting for uh, people to argue with you on <laughs> any of that. You know, I've got to mention, I have, I give presentations every once in a while when I'm invited to, and I have worked you into the presentation. So you've been traveling with me, uh, Tiffany. You didn't know that. Um, awesome. It's it's basically kind of a high level. This one talk I gave where it, it's the story of like I had a friend from college who became the 
president of a manufacturing company and he called me up one day and said, Doug, I'm an engineer. I've never had to deal with marketing. What, what do I need to know? (laughs) It's like, what are these people supposed to be doing? What matters? What, what's, what's the whole game here? And I spoke to him for about an hour and at the end of it, he felt really like, ah, okay, thank you. I kind of understand now what what I should be doing. So that's kind of what the presentation's about. But to the surprise of a lot of people, I, and I introduce your book as part of it about growth. And the first two of the 10, I guess for people who haven't uh, listened to that episode or don't know about your book, I should explain that it's the, basically it outlines the 10 ways that companies can grow. And uh, I, and it shows examples of companies that did it right, companies that did it wrong. And I liked it as a marketer because there are a lot of listeners and, you know, people I know who work at companies where the boss is slamming uh, their fists on the table saying, make more call calls, run more ads. We want to grow. And it's like, wait a minute, boss, <laughs> there's some specific things we could be doing. So I was hoping that they would then encourage their boss to, to read the book. So the very first of those 10 was improving your customer experience. And I always yes. thought that was so interesting that that was the first one. And then the second one, so, so that's one way of introducing to a lot of these companies that, you know, you should be thinking about that customer experience. And now I can bolster that with this data that just came out this week about how people are willing to pay more and they expect a, a good customer experience to be just as good as the product or the service. But then the second one was sell more to your existing customers. I have that right, right? It was, it was basically yes. sell Cust- more. Customer-based penetration. Customer-based penetration. Yeah, yes. so it's not like coming yep. up with new customers, and it's not like coming up with nope. new products. But nope. those two seem like such a no-brainer, and and it really throws people off. I've, I've found when you are explaining that one of the best things that you should be doing first is trying to sell more to your current customers than chasing down net new customers. I, you must run into that too. Yeah, and and what. What happened on that was I started with uh, path one being customer experience very intentionally um, because you have to start with the customer. Going back to what we were just talking about, like, what do you think you should be doing? I used to answer very quickly. Here's the three or four things I think you should be doing. And I probably was doing a disservice to my customers, you know, 10 years ago when I was advising that way versus saying, "Um, I don't know what you should do. Tell me about your customers. (laughs) And then I can answer, right? And then and 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 also part of Growth IQ, the very first thing was to understand the context of your market. So now I actually ask those two questions. Tell me the context of your market. Who are your customers? What's your culture like? Are you an innovative culture? What KPIs are you tracking? Like what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your sales process. What's your marketing process? You know, who are the, you know, what are the industries that you're, you know, like you just got to get a context, you know, and and to, to play on that, then it would build into Matt's book, right? Context marketing that you got to mm-hmm. understand what's going on before you can market you know, like, for example, right now we have five generations working in the workforce. People are working longer. 50% of buying uh, buyers, the discretion is coming out of female purchasers. And so if you're only, you know, messaging to the male buyer, you're missing 50%. That's a context comment, right? Mm. So, um, so thinking about that. So it, when I, when I did that, you know, I used to consistently hear three things. Uh oh, we're in trouble. Sales are starting to slow down. Our leads are slowing down. Like we don't know what's happening. We're going to do one of three things: one, hire more salespeople because I can, I can hire a salesperson in three months. I can get them to start to produce the ROI on the forty, fifty, sixty thousand I'm going to spend on their base pay is going to make itself back in you know four or five months, and that's a fast return on investment. And now I'm selling more stuff, so hire more salespeople. Second was spend more marketing dollars. Well, if more is going in the top of the funnel, more will come out the bottom of the funnel. If I have more sales reps, those two things together will help. Or three, I'm going to cut costs and artificially grow on my P&L. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of the three things I would always hear. And so when someone's in trouble on growth or sales or selling or leads, they're like, well, we're going to do hire more salespeople, spend more marketing dollar, cut costs. <laughs> and I knew there had to be more than that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And and by and by the way, you know, the thing that I found fascinating was the reason I made that second path customer based penetration is 
going back to the behaviors being incorrect is if your metric as a marketer is on new logos, new customer acquisition, and your seller metric is on new logo, new customer acquisition, who's paying attention to the base of customers you already have tends to be customer service. And so within that customer base penetration chapter in Growth IQ and uh, customer experience, and another one, which was optimized sales, those three things together were like, okay, you could, if you sold one more thing to everybody you've ever sold to, you could double your business <laughs> without finding a net new customer, mm-hmm. right? And then the argument would be, well, okay, now, now, the, now the baby becomes ugly in the sense that, oh, I don't know who our customers were. I don't have their contact information. I have bad data. I don't know the last time they bought. I don't know what they bought. I don't know how often they buy. I don't know any of that information. And I'm like, okay, so you're just going to spend more marketing money and hire more salespeople. And this goes back to having to do the hard work uh, because the gold you already have is, you know, your competitors don't have them. You do. So, you know, nurture them. And and I think my best example is always a cell phone company. Like I like to pick on that with, you know, watching TV and the cell phone ad comes on. They're like, oh, if you sign up, you get, you know, four phones, nine trillion gigs of data. We'll come to your house, set it up, rub your feet, <laughs> walk your dog, you know, teach PE to your kids today. Like, because they, you know, they're homeschooled right now. Like we're going to do all this for you. And you're like, Oh my God, that's the greatest thing. And you pick up the phone and you call them and they happen to be your carrier. But now that everyone's home, you want all this new stuff and they go, Oh no, 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 not for you. No, only for new customers. Cause you, <laughs> Mr. Loyal customer, Miss loyal customer for the past, I don't know, 20 years. And your ARPU is, I don't know, 300 bucks a month. You, I don't care about. The person I don't know, totally care about. Right. <laughs> that reminds me of a, a joke I've heard, and I won't tell it right or in a funny way, but there was this uh, person who uh, died and uh, got to heaven and uh, met St. Peter, and they said, look, uh, you can you can go here into heaven, and uh, you know it's, it's very nice, or you can go... Uh, Get on the elevator, go down, check out hell, see see what you think of that. So the person goes down to hell, and it's really nice. They played a lot of golf, they had parties, it was a lot of fun. A lot of their friends were there, and you know, it's seen. And, and they met the devil, and they thought he was a really nice guy, actually. And so uh, it was kind of boring up in heaven. And the person said, "Well, I think I want to. Yeah, I think I'll just go to hell because you know it just it just seemed better. I mean, nothing against here in heaven." And so they said, okay, good. So they get back on the elevator and they go back down and it's a, it's a eternal flame. It's, it's, it's people being tortured and burning, you know, all the Dante's Inferno. And uh, they say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, what happened? What happened? And they said, well, uh, when you came down here the first time, you were a prospect. Now you're a customer. <laughs> So, yes, I, I've I've seen that uh, joke applied to uh, people who work in marketing agencies as well. But my favorite chapter in the book was chapter six, I believe, but it was number six, optimizing sales. Yes, because it seemed like that was after you you know improve your customer experience and you you sell more to your current customers. If you like, if you could only do three of those things, it seemed like optimized sales would work so well. And there's such a disconnect between, well, I think in your book, you talked about how if other departments had the same sort of uh, numbers that were being missed as a lot of sales departments, it it wouldn't be tolerated. Um, Do you think there's somebody at Salesforce that might ultimately write a book about um, sales optimization? I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I'd say this: we our state of sales research is equally powerful as the state of marketing. Uh, and and I I would say this: that there is so much fat on that bone. Sixty five or so percent of a seller's time is spent on non selling activities. Mm. And of course, going back to the joke I said earlier, salespeople do not wake up every day and they can't wait to date enter. <laughs> which is a true statement. Um, We're working really hard to solve that, right? Is it voice in order to take unstructured data of a, you know, a full, you know, one minute recording as you're leaving, you know, a customer's office or after you've gotten off the phone, taking all that unstructured data, mining through it, using AI, putting the pertinent 
things into the CRM so that you don't have to manually enter or taking it from disparate sources and really getting towards a single source of truth using a data management platform. And there's so many things technically that go on behind trying to make some of that, giving some of that time back, you know, that 66% spent on non-selling. But some of it is that sellers have to get in the habit of entering and using the data that they have at their disposal so that it's not CRM is not viewed as an input mechanism. It's really viewed as an output opportunity. And those insights coming out of the CRM make the seller more efficient, more productive, you know, all those things. That's, that's why telling a seller to call 100 people a day in 2020, in my mind, is not the right thing to do. It should be, you have to hit this number. So if you call 10 people, 20 or 200, hit the number. And as you get smarter and smarter with CRM, and CRM helps you be more efficient with not only your time, but calling the right customer at the right time with the right offer, sharing the right content has to happen through intelligence and all the things that we can't do as humans at scale across hundreds and sometimes thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of customers, depending who you are, right? Especially in the long tail um, on transactional consumer type products. And so um, there's lots of optimization that can go into taking time off their hands. And the reason that's important is because 50 so percent of us, of your entire sales team will miss quota. Now you're never going to get to a hundred unless you got one person that hits a hundred. Okay. But for all intent and purposes, hitting a hundred percent is across the board in your entire sales team is unrealistic, but you do sure want to make sure that they're in the 70, 80, 90% range as a whole, you know, not in the 50, 60% range. And if you can just move those middle performers up two, three, four, 5%, and you've got a good size selling organization, you're going to be a hero. That's why focusing in on the base, if you're looking for in quarter realization of an uptick in sales, going out to a net new customer who doesn't know you, doesn't trust you, has never bought from you, knows nothing about your brand or what a great experience you deliver. But the people who've already given you money once have, have given you the opportunity to earn their business again. And if they've given it to you twice, then they've proven their loyalty by giving you that money, right? And if they've bought for you three, four, five, six times, shame on you to not care about them. Yes, and for some reason, that makes me think of all those emails you were describing where it's like, well, if I were that important, I would have heard from you, you know? And maybe if they had com communicated with you on a more regular basis, you would have maybe even remembered who they were. And uh, there might have been a need uh, along the way that you could have said, oh, that's right. I'm, I need some more of that or, or whatever. I found the same thing. I was calling some somewhat lapsed clients recently. Now they got us doing more work for them. <laughs> Funny how that, how that works. So, Tiffany, I know this sounds crazy, but is there anything that you're really optimistic or excited about that's going to result from the changes brought by this pandemic? Well, I hope there's a couple of things. You know, I, I feel like there's so much opportunity that's shown itself during this time, you know, when we can be we, just innovation on a global scale at such a rapid pace as we look through testing and um, vaccines, et cetera. I think that that's just uh, inspiring. But then there's it, there's also kind of the other side that it's also exposed. I mean, there's still 18 or 20 million people across the U.S. who don't have access to high-speed internet, and now you want them to educate their kids from home mm -hmm. when they don't have high-speed internet or to talk to their doctor that way. I mean, you know, three or four weeks ago when Starbucks was completely closed in, in Los Angeles and pretty much across the country and the globe, um, the parking lots of Starbucks were still full. And, and I was perplexed because I was like, Oh, maybe Starbucks opened back up. And I drive through Nope, everyone was sitting in their cars with their laptops and trying to get taking free Wi-Fi off the sales, uh, out of the, um, Starbucks oh, Wi-Fi. Interesting. You know, so I, it's also, you know, the, the unequalness and unequal distribution of kind of the have and have nots around the things that people have obviously now need. It could be transportation. It could be, you know, how am I going to order groceries? I don't have, you know, I can't get to and from my doctor's office because I used to use Uber. Now what do I do? Like, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, we have this opportunity to, and even, even the goodness that's come out of it with the air quality being better and the oceans being better and yeah, particularly the in Los Angeles. dropping and, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, and in Asia and in India and in Europe and yes. in Venice and in, mm -hmm. I mean, just everywhere, you know, 
um, that do we then say, wow, you know, the planet actually is breathing better <laughs> when, when the humans are a little more quiet, you know, can we do things around education and healthcare um, and, and access to things that people need, especially if we're going to keep this physical distancing up because I don't like social distancing. Cause I feel like I don't want to be isolated. Yes. Like I, I still want to be social. I just physically, I can't be near you. Right. But yeah. I call it physical distancing. So that would have been a better term. Uh, and you're not the only one that said that Joey Coleman mentioned that in an earlier interview where the social distancing, no, it's physical distancing. Yes. Anyway. Well, yeah, and I and I also say that I, I don't like I don't like new normal because uh, we're getting back to normal because of what I was just talking about that the the normal we left was unequal, it was not sustainable, it was all the things we've now learned that we you know we couldn't rapidly spin stuff up like states are different than the cities and the counties and the you know the who's got who can say you can do what and you know it was just sort of all these things that's exposed. Um, going back to my friend, Barry, you know, who did the commencement speech talking about sort of, you know, what we've learned through all this, uh, you know, ultimately I feel like I, I like the kind of the new future and, and what does the future look like? Uh, we want it to be better than it was like going back to polluting the planet and, and having, you know, the only time that kids get to eat is when they're at school that, you know, people working three jobs, what happens when daycare is closed and the parents have to work? Like, what do you, what do you do in these situations? Like, uh, you know, I know it's only happened once every hundred years, you know, knock on wood, but I, I think that because we now have such amazing technology at our fingertips, like how do we take this situation learn from it and use technology to innovate in areas where we clearly need it. Oh, yeah. It's going to be interesting. And I think for the rest of our working days, they're going to be talking about how uh, this brought about certain innovations and changes, or I think more likely accelerated a lot of things that were already uh, afoot. Um, Obama, his, I, I just looked it up. He had a virtual commencement speech to the class of 2020. I will, yes. I haven't watched yep. it, but I'd heard something about it. Yes, I have a, a news deficiency, but I will include a link to that on your episode's show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com. Well, Tiffany, are there any other books um, for you in the future? I don't know. You know, I would have said, you know, I was in the middle of sort of thinking about what is that going to look like and, you know, all those things. And I, you know, it's just, it's so interesting. It's so interesting as we've all sort of dealt with this situation in very different ways, you know, because of our own personal situations. And it's like, really, like, is that what I want to be doing right now? I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I feel like, how can I add the most value, um, today and is it is it writing a new book i'm not sure i think there's so many um you know miles and legs still left in growth iq considering the fact that the opening of it was when you hit a growth stall and 85 percent of businesses at some point in the research had shown that they were going to hit a growth stall well now we have a global growth stall <laughs> and so you know, i think more people industry, probably need to read growth iq at this point yeah and so i feel like it's a little timeless yeah uh, and i wrote it that way on purpose i did not reinvent the wheel i did not come up with my own 10 paths i just put the story together right in a way that was digestible um and and one that people could continue to reference and jump around as they see see fit and so you know right now i'd say if you're if you're looking for something to read of course, I'd love for you to read the book. If you've already read the book, I would say rereading those three you called out, right? Customer experience, path one, customer base penetration, path two. And I think to your point, sales path optimization. Three, yeah. Oh yeah. Optimizing sales. Those three right there um, <laughs> have enough work for you to do. Yes. That was my takeaway in the book is if, if a lot of companies would just do those three or at least explore them, uh, it, it, would, it would be enormously helpful. The other thing and then I'll, I'll move off of this, but did I mention I liked your book? The the one thing that was in all 10 of them is that the companies that were very successful were the ones that had the deepest understanding of their customers. Yes. And so that's a, another point I make and I, when I'm uh, evangelizing your book, but it's like understand yeah, and your I, customers and the ones that yeah. blew it. In, and what's also interesting in the book is that you showed examples of the darlings who, who blew things. In other words, like Starbucks got some things very wrong and you included that as an example. And I'm just, I was reading a book today and this author was talking about how they're so tired of Apple 
being an example in every business book. <laughs> and it was sort of like in yours, you showed like the ones that a lot of people think can do no wrong. Well, actually, they did. They did get some more things incorrect, and then they, in, in many instances, went on to fix that. Yeah, and and the reason I chose the stories I did, and by the way, like I did not write good to great. <laughs> I did not follow one company all the way through because some of those good to great brands are no longer here. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what I did was I took a point in time where that story will never change. There is no update to that story because oh, it was yeah. a point in time, right? Mm -hmm. And so the point in time story you're referencing is there was a point in time where Starbucks had lost their way to their true north of everything was about the customer that just lost their way. And so they had to get back to it. Like, you can't say that never happened. It happened. Yep. Now it's, will it happen again? So then the question becomes, okay, reading that, wow, we've lost our way. And, you know, it's not lost on me that I work for Salesforce and we obviously, um, you know, have a CRM product plus lots of other things and marketing and service, et cetera. But you just can't do this kind of very tight empathetic, engaging, real-time, personalized customer experience without technology. I mean, yeah. unless you're one person, like, in, you know, you have three employees and five customers, high touch, like there's always going to be outliers. So to those of you who hear me say, okay, so there's 5% on either end that are going to be outliers. I'm talking about in mean, that is true for 70% of companies. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I totally swagged that number. So don't hold me to it, but you know, <laughs> you right? sounded a, so convincing. So a big continue. percentage. Yeah. A big percentage. And so, you know, I would just say that, well, there's some businesses that may never recover from this. Unfortunately, I'd say that those that, you know, I'm just going to pick the restaurant business as an example. Like if you already had your menu online, if you already had the ability to order and have delivery, and you already had a relationship set up with Uber Eats or Grubhub or whoever it was, you already had, you know, the ability for people um, to work flexible hours and you were doing like, you know, parties and this and that, and your revenue streams were distributed between not just in the restaurant where people have to physically sit, but you had 30 or 35% was also delivery or parties or whatever it might be. You were in a much better situation than I only do it in these four walls. I don't know who my customers are. I don't do delivery. And so if the, you know, if something happened and I had to close down, I'd be out of business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I think that this is one of those times where if you can, if you can pause and really do an inventory of what was working pre-COVID and what do we need to look like post-COVID in order to now deal with, and you, and you said it, right, this, these new habits that have been formed takes an average of 66 days to form a habit. We are well past that in this lockdown, which means habits have changed. Now the question is how many of these habits will stick? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, listen, Tiffany, I really, I, we've gone longer than I thought we would. I, I appreciate all the time you spent with me and the listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast. But I, uh, uh, again, I appreciate it. And I uh, want to thank you for joining us here on Authors in Quarantine, Getting Cocktails. And I hope that you and everyone in your world uh, stays safe and healthy and reasonably sane. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me again, you know, and I appreciate the support as always on, on the book and, and everything that I do. It's, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Cheers. Cheers.